Welcome to the 
this is a word from a lost civilization. Uh, there were nomads running across the prairies or steppes, as they're for some reason called, of Eurasia, from Hungary all the way into Western China. Uh, and they dominated the uh, trade uh, in this area. And as far as we can tell, they spoke Iranian languages, uh, probably more akin to Pashto than to modern Persian, Farsi. Um, and there is one surviving, or probably two, one surviving spot in the North Caucasus where we have Ossetians. And Ossetians still speak a language descended from these steppe Iranians that were running around. Um, now, Nart itself is simply means hero, uh, and it goes wherever the tales go. And what we have, uh, as is typical of folklore, is a whole hodgepodge and mixture of stuff. Some of it very old, some of it fairly new, some of it Iranian, some of it local. Uh, and uh, it's, it's um, a very rich source of, of material, some striking and, and, and stunning stuff. So the women, as is the culture of their area, the women uh, enjoy enormous status in the tales, and they do that in real life too. Um, so this is a uh, reflection of the cultural values of this zone. So uh, just to, to jump in and, and quickly, uh, Don, I know you've got a bunch of questions too, but I want to just follow up on what you've just said, just to clarify a few things and certain things I'm chomping at the bit to ask about because having read stuff about this region, because as you know from what Don and I talk about on this podcast, we're interested in warrior women, queens, the ancient matriarchies, that sort of stuff. So lots of stuff I, I really can't wait to ask you. But first, uh, about three or four things come up from what you just said. The first of it is, why did you end up with these languages? How did it happen? Because you were saying it's just like by chance you uh, came upon these languages. What what was it? How did you discover them? <laughs> it's a long story, actually. Um, I started out in physics and at Cornell, and my supervisor took my scholarship away from me to give to his nephew. Oh, my uh, goodness. Well, it was the 60s, and things like that happened. Um, so I ended up switching from physics into philosophy. And in philosophy, we had to take Greek. And it turned out I proved it to be a polyglot. I didn't know this, but uh, one of my Greek professors sort of uncovered this about me. And so I went from ancient Greek, and then I did a uh, master's. Uh, and I did some Armenian, and uh, then I went to Harvard, and I did Persian, and I did Georgian. And on the side, I did Ossetian because there was an old Ossetian man down in New Jersey, about about four hour drive south of Boston. I was going to ask you about that too because I'm from New York. I'm from Staten Island. Where in Jersey is this this community of Ossetians? <laughs> North, North Halden. Uh, where Patterson? Patterson. Oh, Patterson. Oh, okay, yeah, up north. Okay, mm -hmm. but not Patterson, far from. Okay, Patterson, Halden, North Halden. Okay. Um, so North Halden is a huge mosque. These are Muslims, uh, Sunni Muslims, and uh, there's a big mosque and uh, quite a few families and almost the entire town in some ways is, is Circassian. Police force is entirely Circassian. Wow. Um, yeah. And, um, but I was, I was at Harvard and this professor handed me a cassette. He said, my friend says this language has only two vowels. I think he's full of, you know, whatever. And uh, would you listen to it and tell me what you think? So I spent a month transcribing this story in a language called a baza. And in fact, it had only two vowels. Wow. Uh, uh, and, uh. <laughs> so they're, they're sort of the mirror image of what happens in most languages. 
most languages, the vowels color the consonants, right? So ki, ki uh, is further forward in the mouth because of the E, uh, and k, kar is further back. That's normal. Most languages do that. Not these languages. They do it the other way around. <laughs> so the consonants color the vowel. Huh. And um, so it's, it's a very, very odd situation. And linguistically, they're extraordinarily complicated languages, very powerful. They, I, after Abaza, I did Ubuch. I'm one of the few remaining people that knows any Ubuch. It went extinct pretty well. It had 81 consonants. Uh, Abaza has 60-something. Uh, I learned a dialect of Circassian called Biedot, um, and that has 68 consonants, I think. Um, so it's it's uh, it was a linguistic challenge, and it was an extraordinary set of languages. So they're, they're very, very complicated, very expressive. Um, and the language of the uh, tales is sort of archaic. It's bardic language, we call it. It's sort of more complex and rich than the usual conversational stuff. Um, Can I just and, jump in with yeah. one more question? And I'm sorry, yeah. no, I, don't, I want to hand it over because I know you'll you got a bunch. It's, the Iran, one of the other things that have come up, and Don, you and I have talked about this from these different tribes. Like we'll look at stuff like the Masagatai and the Isidones, and they're they're grouped in with Iranic speaking languages, Iranic speaking people. And I, could you talk a little bit more about the distinction that you just made? Because this was something that I was always curious about between an Iranian language family and <laughs> Iran. You know, the people of Iran and that sort of thing. What is the distinction or the connection between among these groups. Okay, uh, let's go back about 5,000 years. Okay. Uh, maybe six. And what seems to have been going on around that time was that there were people coming up from the North Caucasus into the prairies just to the north and what's now southern Russia, uh, that kind of area. And um, they, they, they spoke a language that we have reconstructed by systematic comparison with a whole range of languages. And we call this language, mother language, Proto-Indo-European. And people have been working on this for about 200 years. Uh, and it's quite well known. It's amazing. They were able to, to come up with very plausible arguments about how these people talked, what they, what they talked about, what they believed, and so forth, what kind of food they had, what kind of animals they had, and so on and so forth. Um, and, for example, the word for horse is hross in Norse and all that. It goes back... Uh, to a Proto-Germanic chras, chras. And this is the same word as cursor, cursor uh, in Latin. So it means a runner, something very fast. Um, and uh, we build on that word by word by word. So this language differentiated, they, they invented, um, they domesticated the horse, the first ones to do so. They invented a lightweight kind of wagon or chariot, and they started spreading all over the steppes. Uh, they started spreading into Europe. They're spreading down into India, spreading into Western China um, in a world that at that time was quite wide open. So as they spread out, they lost touch with each other. Their local dialects began to differentiate from each other. Uh, and you ended up with various what we call daughter branches. So the mother gave off daughters. And one of those daughters is Germanic, from which English and German and Norse and all that are derived. Another Slavic, Russian and Czech and so forth. And another one was what we call Indo-Iranian. And this is, one group went down into India and sort of pursued their, their um, own history. And you get all these languages of Northern India, like Hindi, 
and Gujarati, Nepali, and whatnot. And another group stayed sort of up in the steppes and moved down a little bit further to the west into what we call now the Iranian Plateau. We don't know what languages were spoken. Well, we know there was something called Elamite spoken there before, before this daughter group of Indo-Europeans went down in there and converted it. The, one that went the ones that went down in there became Southern Iranians, or sometimes they're called Western Iranians. It's a bit confusing. The Western Iranians is the older terminology. The ones that stayed up on the steps and continue to pursue that kind of lifestyle, uh, we called uh, Northern Iranians, and the older term was Eastern Iranians because they, they were thought to be further east of Iran. Um, and they, they also became mercenaries for the Roman Empire and were brought into places like England and, and France and whatnot. And the reason we're wearing trousers and have jackets and shoes as opposed to togas and sandals is because we adopted the clothing of these people uh, as the Roman Empire was falling apart. Uh, so they, they had some very substantial impact that's generally not recognized. Um, and yet, uh, uh, if you study them a little bit, it, it jumps out at you. Oh, my goodness, of course, I'm wearing trousers because of these, these characters. Um, and trousers were more efficient in riding on horseback. Right. Um, so uh, their languages, they apparently quickly gave up their languages, settled down to the more easy life of, of uh, civilization and adopted whatever the local language was. Although we do have traces uh, of things. Um, uh, Intish, you might recall, Lord of the Rings, or like the Ents, uh, Intish. This is from an old English word, Antisk. And it's actually an Iranian word for frontier. Oh people from the frontier. Uh, Ukraine is a Slavic word meaning from the frontier, but it's unrelated. It's not uh, not part of that linguistic game I was playing. Um, so uh, when we speak of, of Narts, we have other words like this that pop up. And uh, Nero in, in Rome, Nero is from the same original word uh, in the mother language. Uh, Greek, Greek has Andros or an Aner, uh, possessive andros, android, and all that for a man. That's also the same root, um, and so we can we can do this linguistic game, and we can find what we call cognates. We can find cousins, which are actually the same word descended from the mother, but in different daughters. Okay, uh, so it's a tricky game, and there's lots of fighting and all that. Typifies uh, a vigorous uh, academic pursuit. Um, but it's amazing uh, that they've been able to do this. And I play some small role in this relating the languages of the Northwest Caucasus uh, also to Indo-European. It was embraced by a few Indo-Europeanists, um, but I was later vindicated by the geneticists because they found the same link, right. uh, genetics. Um, and the archaeologists are now interpreting material in a similar fashion. So we have three independent branches, linguistic analysis, genetic analysis, and um, uh, archaeological analysis, linking the North and particularly the Northwest Caucasus to this Indo-European culture uh, in, the, in the steppes. Actually, it has a name. It's Yamnaya culture. Right. right. Yes. We, we've, we've been talking quite a about, bit about the Yamnaya. Yamnaya. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yamnaya. And in fact, um, the Circassian self-designation Adir. Uh, it sounds weird. The D is originally an R. Uh, actually, is the same word as Aryo, Aryon, uh, which is apparently what the uh, let's forget the Nazis here. 
That's apparently what the Indo-Europeans call themselves, and it just means person, people, which is the mm. most common ethnic self-designation right. on the planet. Right. Who are you? We're people. Who are you? You know, that kind of encounter. Right. right, yeah. We are the people, and who are you? Yeah. Yeah, right. You yeah. are the others, yeah. You got that funny thing on your head. It's called a hat? What? <laughs> that kind of thing. So yeah. I wanted to um, dig into this um, Iranian uh, connection a little bit more because um, you say in your preface that uh, um, some of the traditions of the Iranian-speaking steppe nomads, um, mm. the Scythians, the Sarmatians, and the Alans. Alans um, yeah. yeah, Alans. Okay, great. Mm. Yes. Um, well, Alan is Aryan in another, in, with the R-Y going to an L. Okay. Okay. okay, we uh, we asked uh, John off air before we started to correct our pronunciation because uh, Sean and I have been reading this material, um, but not speaking it aloud. So, uh, <laughs> so we uh, appreciate uh, the corrections. So <laughs> we, of course, you know, with our we have been studying this migration of um, of the uh, the um, Anatolian farmer DNA and all and um, yeah, what farmer, we yeah, yeah. Renfrew's theory yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are looking for uh, you know and we speak quite a bit uh, about this with Vicky Noble who has been a frequent guest and who mm-hmm. um, is a, uh, a student of um, uh, Maria Gambutas yeah mm-hmm. and and her theories so we when I saw in your preface that you mentioned a con- uh, a possible connection with uh, Scythian Sarmatians that, you know, rang a bell for me because we have been talking with Vicky about the idea that um, when the, the waves of invasions from the Indo-Europeans and the Yamnaya came Mm -hmm. that, um, that the, the people who had been settled in the Danube river region um, sort of uh, scattered in two directions um, some of them went uh, south and east uh, through Anatolia and eventually possibly ended up all the way in India. And then there were the groups that went north and east and um, may have ended up in this uh, Caucasus region that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you found any linguistic um, connections, uh, any any sort of echoes of... Uh, what may have been that connection? Okay, well, Renfrew's, Renfrew's ideas are largely now abandoned by most workers in this area. Um, the, the timing's not right. Uh, it's clear that agricultural, agricultural spread, that there probably were terms that went with it that we still could, could find and work on and all that, but it could not have been Indo-European. Um, the people in Anatolia... Uh, which has always been a kind of a complicated mixed place. Only recently in modern history has it been more or less a single empire or right. country. Right. Um, the people in Anatolia spoke a branch of Indo-European that's very archaic. And my colleagues uh, are beginning to come around to the idea that, in fact, it represents a split off from an even older version of Proto-Indo-European. So now we hear of, you know, original Indo-European or Indo-Anatolian, and we hear of, of uh, canonical or uh, normal Indo-European, that kind of, these kinds of terms. They're not really settled yet. Um, 
there are some problems with Anatolian that set it apart from everything else that we see descending from Indo-European. Um, some of which I can actually explain by comparison by comparison with some of the things that have gone on in the Northwest Caucasian languages, Circassian, Ubuk, Abkhaz. Um, the uh, spread of agriculture uh, would have gone with plant matter and things like that. Um, and there are some funny words, and I, I've shown this. I have yet to publish this, but um, for example, uh, there are some words uh, for um, garlic in Latin um, that resemble the word for lily in Tamil. You know, Tamil belongs to a different language family. It's called right. Dravidian. And there's some effort to try to, to relate that to Elamite, which was the pre-Indo-European language of, of Iran. And if you go further west, you get Ur uh, in ancient Mesopotamia. Ur is Ura, two R's and an A, is a word for settlement or village in Proto-Dravidian. Uh, and then nearby to Ur was Uruk. The Uk part is also Proto-Dravidian for uh, nearby. <laughs> so oh, okay. It works perfectly. And the word uh, lily, uh, Ayla, and Alium in Latin, uh, they're botanically in the same family. Um, so I know because I I dug out one of my wife's lilies and I thought it was an onion. <laughs> ah. uh, so it was a mistake, gardening mistake from a couple of years back. Uh, um, <laughs> so this is the kind of thing that people uh, should be looking at. And, and there's some words for river matching to this and whatnot. Um, John, can I just, just a quick mm -hmm. yeah. on that? Because uh, the, the track that Dawn is taking that we look at a lot on this, this program is what these this Anatolian world would have been like before this Indo-European invasion. You're talking about Dravidian now. Is there any, do you know of, is there any connection between the, the linguistics of the Anatolian world, what those languages sounded like in Dravidian? Is there some indication based on what you've just been saying that there might have been a language family that was connected in terms of their spread? Meaning the people who were there before the Indo-Europeans yes. had a different, uh, a different kind of civilization. Well, I, I, yes, I, I think what you did have was was a farming, settled farming civilization um, that uh, was able, capable of making up cultic centers, uh, which we, we have found uh, as late Neolithic stuff in in Turkey, right. uh, Eastern Turkey. Um, and probably extended as uh, through the Mediterranean, at least as far as the Italian peninsula. Uh, so that would be one of my arguments. And then extended eastward uh, and was basically pushed south by Indo-European pressure. And uh, similarly, the, the nomads came in um, and brought genes that, you know, for t tolerating milk and yogurt and things, came in to Western Europe. Um, and to some extent, they probably may have had a symbiotic, more or less peaceful. I know Maria Gambutas, whom I greatly admire, um, uh, saw more uh, of a kind of warlike encounter and patriarchy, replacing matriarchy and these sorts of things. There may have been something like that. But uh, I've argued uh, with some looking at some Irish material that we actually have a fairly good case that they cooperated uh, they provided 
security and meat, and the other people, the farmers, the, the older Europeans provided um, uh, vegetable matter and fruit and, and things like this and grains. Uh, so that between the two of them, they ended up making a kind of resilient uh, agricultural and economic base. Um, now, one of the things is that Ario, when it goes into Europe, means noble, uh, aristocrat. Uh, arist is, is superlative, A-S-T is E-S-T of English. It's uh, the most Ari. Um, and we have some archaic Germanic inscriptions that also have Ario. Uh, when you go east and, and further into the steppes, you would have encountered other, other nomads of some sort. Mm-hmm. And that became a, an ethnic polarization. So the Aryans, of which Iran is a variant of that word, the Aryans encountered the non-Aryans. And we hear about all the tales and from Sanskrit lore and all this and, and Zoroastrian material about the Aryans versus the non-Aryans and those are the enemy and so forth. So we get the hostility in the East. We don't get it in Europe. There's no linguistic trace of that. Uh, so I, I would say that, I mean, things like Minoan civilization is probably an outlier of old Europe, which is what Maria called it. Uh, so the Minoan civilization, perhaps uh, some of the uh, the older stuff. And what, what we do is we look for river names and odd place names, and we try to retrieve older languages that way. So I'm sitting in a place called Ontario, which is Iroquois, Iroquoian of some sort. Right. And we don't quite know what it meant, but we know we can recognize the language from which it came. And, and near near me, about an hour east of me, is Toronto, which means sunken log. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I spent many years in Chicago, which is, you know, Chicago, the land of the stinky onion. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, John, with, with the Minoan, as you alluded to, so you're saying in that one, that outlier would have been not, would have been more like what you describe in the East, where there's an antagonistic clash? Uh, well, it certainly ended up being antagonistic with the invading Greeks, uh, for sure. <laughs> Um, probably initially, though, perhaps not. It might have been just a peaceful outlier, southern outlier of old European civilization. Um, there are some funny things kicking. There's Basque, for example, in the Pyrenees. This is non-Indo-European language. Right. Uh, we have Georgian in the Caucasus, which is, is clearly not related to, to other Caucasian languages. Uh, it might be related to a language called Borushaski uh, in northern Pakistan, in that area, in the Hindu Kush. Um, uh, they're Dagestani languages. Uh, they're, they're not related to, to the Northeast Caucasian. They're not related to the Northwest Caucasian. We have three language families wow. in an area the size of Spain with about 50 languages altogether. Right. And they're distinct. So some of them may have been part of this spectrum of a kind of Southern zone of agriculture um, going from uh, Neolithic Anatolia eastward through Iranian Plateau and all westward uh, into uh, into Europe, um, so you have to look at uh, river names, old place names, and whatnot. And these often reveal uh, features of the earlier earlier languages that were were in the region. And we do have these traces. We have the we have the Basque. We have the stuff from the Caucasus. We have Dravidian. Um, we have Elamite, which people are working on. Um, so definitely so, indications of a people that traveled distances that were. You know, for yeah, one so reason or another, there was yeah. definitely travel there. Yeah, there, it would have been trade in, in uh, food, food items, for sure. 
Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Dried out things that would have endured you know, long, uh, long trips. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, I have one more question before I turn this over to Sean um, is uh, in Adrian Mayer's introduction, there's a tantalizing little, little uh, <laughs> thing that was, that she dropped in there about um, the, the language on the, um, Oh heavens! Now I've lost the page. Uh, the vases. The, the, the vases. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The vases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That uh, they called you in um, to take a look at these, you know, quote unquote nonsense scratches, you know, on these vases, and it yeah. turned out to be um, remnants of of their their sort of names. Like nicknames for the uh, for the characters. Well, it varies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, here we go. Yes, that the 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 mysterious letters might uh, might actually be remnants of foreign languages, mm-hmm. and um, that uh, they were phonetic renditions of phrases that um, in in some of these ancient languages, Uzbek, Circassian, um, Georgian. But used with Greek letters, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, and and you know these were on um, illustrations of uh, Amazon warriors. Yes. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. <laughs> okay. That's fascinating. <laughs> well, Adrian uh, approached me out of the blue um, and wanted to know if I would help her uh, uh, look at some of these vase writings. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about Greek vases, although I studied Greek. I never found them interesting. Um, and so uh, she was very clever. She would uh, write out or type out, uh, sometimes uh, uh, something scanned, uh, what was on a vase. She wouldn't tell me anything about the pictures on the vase at all. And uh, I looked at this stuff and I was helped by the fact that I was privy to efforts on the part of Circassians, Abkhazians, and all to represent their language uh, in Latin script uh, in an early version of the internet. So, um, language, language um, sa- sounds, for example, like duh, duh, where it's different from tuh or duh. Because the larynx is actually shut, it's uh, you feel like you're choking when you say it. Uh, and they often would write it T and D together, um, which is apparently something also done among uh, um, American Indians when they have similar sounds and are trying to represent some of them. Um, so I it sort of had an introduction to to efforts to to capture these these languages this way. Now they they tend to use Cyrillic. Um, modified Cyrillic orthography. Um, but in any event, uh, so having, looking at some of this stuff, and I see a TD there, and I think, okay, that's a, probably a T. We call it ejective, ejective T. Uh, maybe this is a, a H. Well, and I knew from linguistic work on Greek that there was some dispute about how some of the Greek sounds were originally pronounced. And one of them was the letter chi, looks like an X whether that was a, a k or that was a ch, uh, because later other other sounds in its series, so they call like theta and, and phi, became th and th. Uh, so chi may have led the way in this phonetic shift that we see in the history of Greek. And yeah, so there were lots of chi's here and there, and I was a little 
okay, maybe it's a k, maybe it's a h, you know, kind of thing. So, so often she'd send me something and I would say, this is a language, but I don't know this language and I don't know what's going on here. Um, and I hear, you hear something that looks like a, like a indirect object or I hear something that looks like a direct object, but I can't tell you anything more about it. Right? Uh, she sent me something else and I say, this is garbage. You're sending me garbage. You're, you're jerking me around. And she laughed and said, yeah. Uh, because I had studied glossolalia talking in tongues. Uh, which you also get in, in sometimes in nonsense uh, songs, uh, tra-la-la and things like that. Uh, and they lack certain sounds. They're not natural. They are skewed. Uh, so cuz and guz are generally absent. So I see a whole bunch of T's and P's and L's and stuff, and no cuz and guz anywhere. I say, yeah, this is probably just tra-la-la, you know, and uh, let it go. But there was one particular vase uh, that deserves perhaps more focus here. And that was one that uh, had somebody saying no rara teblo on it. And I said, oh, okay, that's Circassian. It's got two R's in a row, and that's Circassian uh, phonetics. And I could even tell you what it means. It, it means this is, this is the one who passed by, went far away to a, a flat open area and stole something from these people. Okay. And she's, and you can say it all in one word in Circassian. It's a very powerful language. Wow, word. yeah. Um, and, um, I, oh, yeah, and I left out the O part, which is, of course, <laughs> of course, this is the one that went on. You know, blah, blah. Um, so she said, are you sure of that? I said, yes. And she said, again, are you sure of that? I said, yes. I said, exactly what I mean. I'll give you piece-by-piece piece analysis of what what's that word how it means that. And she said, you just translated the goose phase. <laughs> Wow. I said, well, that's good. What's that? Right. <laughs> and she showed me <laughs> an image, and it's it's a loss from a lost play of Aristophanes, where a man has stolen a goose, and the goose gets killed, the owner's angry, he's caught, and he's going to be whipped by a man who says, no rara teblo, and instead of wearing togas like the two Greek figures on the vase, is wearing trousers and a jacket. Wow. And this would be an Athenian policeman wearing Scythian or Scythian clothing um, from uh, the nomads of the steppes. It apparently extended down to the Caucasus. Uh, even down today, they still wear, you can Google Circassian dancing or something, and you can still see them wearing uh, clothing that's, that's descended from, from these old Scythian outfits, um, and from the trousers and, and jackets and, and boots and all. Um, so we know that the Athenians hired these people and brought them over for uh, police work, an equivalent of, of police. Uh, we also have some indications they may have been allowed to participate in the Olympics with the Greeks, something which would have pissed off the Macedonians who weren't allowed to do it. <laughs> but um, um, it's, it was extraordinary. And it was, in fact, uh, the, the vase is housed in a... a um, uh, a wing of the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. I was at a conference in New York City, and I took off the afternoon to go see the vase, and the gallery was closed for renovations. Mm. Uh, they put me in touch with the curator. He didn't know anything about any translations and didn't want to be bothered. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> dear. I've never actually seen the real vase. Oh, um, wow. But uh, it, it's it's available. Uh, we did about 30 of these items, and I think Adrian put up um, about 13 or 14 of them because they were the most solid. 
There's a bunch more. I mean, there's one that says she has curly hair. And it's, ah. an, it's an Abkhazian. And it's over the head of a woman who has curly hair. Uh, there was another one that says, let the dog loose. And I thought, okay, let the, that's what it says. It's an Abkhazian that says, let the dog loose. Um, Circassian dog is he. Um, Ubuk dog is r. Uh, but Abkhazian dog is la. And here it was, la, blah, blah, something. Uh, so let the dog loose. And it was two ladies uh, in sort of Scythian clothing. And between them is a dog running with, with the leash clearly flying in the air. Um, so what that's about, I don't know. But that's what it said, and that's what's going on on the vase. Maybe hunting, maybe? Who maybe knows? Hunting, yeah. maybe, maybe, you know, the, to, to race or, or attack yeah. an intruder or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so just having fun with their dog. <laughs> um, and, and then there was one, it's, a, it's in her later book on Amazon's, is Ashtashit, um, which is the name of a female pharaoh. And Egyptologists have puzzled over her name because it's not Egyptian. I said, it's transparently, and she was known, she was famous for, for, for heading, leading the army in battle and pursuing the fleeing enemy and killing, cutting down fleeing enemy. Um, I said, okay, it's transparently Abkhazian. Ah uh, is some kind of indefinite object. Sh is foot or trace, leg or foot or trace, trail. T is after. Sh is to kill. And T is the one that, the one that kills following people, which is exactly wow. what she was known for. Wow. So do you, does that mean you think she might have been from that region? Is that why she had the name? Or she I think, <laughs> see, there, there was a long tradition of people uh, from Abkhazia and Circassia uh, going down into the Middle East uh, they always said they were slaves. That's an incorrect, incor incorrect translation, but they sort of put themselves out as servants and, and whatnot and uh, often worked their way up into uh, important positions because they were pagans at that time and they therefore could become what they call janissaries. They could become warriors and often they became very powerful, uh, very important uh, people at the courts and so forth. And my guess is that this has been going on for thousands of years. And that we have a glimpse here uh, of an Abkhazian girl who went south and became a pharaoh. What was her name again? Ashtashit. A-S-H-T-A-S-H-A-T or E-T. I think it's shit. Sh is to kill. There's a sh as well, but this is a sh. Ashtashit. That's interesting. It just reminds me of uh, um, when I lived in Chicago, I did a piece called Warrior Queens, uh, a derived theater piece called Warrior Queens. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we found in our research is that um, when, when queens went to war, when queens committed their countries to battle, mm -hmm. um, that generally they would not stop until they had wiped their enemy off the face of the earth. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, whereas, you know, men, uh, kings would tend to go to battle for like, we want this section of land, or, mm -hmm. you know, they gave us an insult, so we're going to battle them. Queens mm -hmm. would resist going to battle, resist, resist, try to placate, try to negotiate, try to do, you know, everything except commit to war. But once they committed, they tended to be incredibly brutal. And, mm -hmm. and would just 
destroy their opponents. So the fact that this queen was known for cutting down people who were fleeing, mm-hmm. so they she had already won the battle, clearly, mm-hmm. and they were running away, and she still wiped them out, is mm-hmm. very much in keeping with that. Yes, yes, and that's 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 a nickname. It's also important to understand that in particular Abkhazians and Circassians, Ubuk as well, uh, had two names. They had a secret name known only by intimates in the close immediate family. And then their public name was a nickname. Uh, and so it's perfectly natural that this pharaoh would have had a, a nickname that also described her conduct in battle. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Then there's Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that before we launch into the individual sagas? Well, I could, yeah. Of course, um, it had a Greek folk etymology. And Adrian actually tracked down exactly the Greek uh, author, classical author, who was trying to explain this word uh, as no breast or something like that. Uh, but one doesn't aim an arrow from the chest, although I have seen pictures of Mongol women doing that. But normally, you pull it up to your cheekbone so you can sight right. at the arrow fly. Um, and also, none of the illustrations of Amazons on Greek vases are missing a breast. No, no, no. They're, they're fully endowed. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's a nonsense word. It's a Circassian word. Uh, and I was translating uh, Lady Nart Sana, and Sana is a, a sacred kind of heroic drink. We're not quite sure what, but we think basically just wine. Um, and uh, uh, she was also called Shisha, uh, Shisha Guasha. Shisha uh, is January and Guasha is Lady, and the title comes after the, the name. So Lady January, don't ask. I have no idea what's going on there. Right. Um, Lady Nartsana, Nartsana Guasha. Um, little golden knees, Disha, gold, Guachni. Uh, pretty golden knees because she wore uh, kind of tights down to just above the knee and boots just up uh, to the bottom of the kneecap and her uh, her knees themselves were exposed and suntanned so she was called pretty golden knees and then she's called Amazon and I thought well there you go it's Oz the Maz is, is forest Ah uh, is an intimate prefix and Na's mother Amazon and she's in a forest in, in the story and all. But it's also possible, and Robert Graves picked this up and mentioned this in his collection of Greek Greek myths, uh, two volumes with, from Penguin, or he's by 800 pages, um, that the Amazons had some remote and mysterious connection to the moon. Okay, that's Circassian phonology. That's their Circassian sound change. So Maze is forest, and Maze is moon. But if Maza is not stressed, as it, is, it would not be in Amazon, okay, it comes out exactly like forest. <laughs> it collapses its vowel qualities. And so Maza in Amazon is actually ambiguous. It could mean forest mother or moon mother. But because she's in a forest, I translated it as forest mother. Um, but this is where the word comes from transparently and its associations and whatnot. And I assume like, like most of the culture in which these, these ancient peoples were embedded, that it had very strong links to the actual nomads uh, north in the steppes. Um, and that uh, for some reason, they, they had ladies that would fight. Um, 
and I guess you know eventually you know, they got older, settled down, and, and have a more routine uh, life. But uh, even so, uh, when the Tsar was uh, when the Russian Revolution was taking place, the Tsar had a protective coterie uh, or squad of women warriors from the Caucasus. Um, I don't know what happened to them. I think they were basically sent back to the Caucasus. Um, but uh, it's it's known that the women in the Caucasus would fight. Um, they enjoy enormous freedom uh, sexually, uh, socially. Their um, prescribed roles are very traditional, but they have enormous prestige for those roles. Um, and they're also seen as having the wisdom and intellect that the men tend to lack. <laughs> Admittedly so. I mean, admittedly so. <laughs> Wonderful. I so love it's it. It's amazing. It. We had on uh, Walter Penrose, who's a professor, uh, and he studies a lot of the warrior women. He's a friend of uh, Adrian's as well. That's how uh, we discovered him. And in his book, uh, Postcolonial Amazons, he talks about the Circassian women, uh, the women of the Caucasus, I should say, and how mm -hmm. they just continue to have that warrior tradition, like you say, right up until you know, modern era. Mm -hmm. um, what, I, what I'm interested in too, is that this, we can transition to the stories this way, is the Circassian specifically, because you, you, I think that's the language that you specialized in, that, that was your entree to this world. And the Circassian women, from so much stuff that I've read and encountered, they are, there's almost a mystical way that they're talked about. You know, there's, there's, they, there's so many different stories of the Circassian women throughout the millennia. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about just the the culture, the language, and women's uh, role in the culture? And also, since we're called Circe, I believe from what mm -hmm. I've read from you, that's from a Circassian name, right? Yes, it is a Circassian name. Uh, it's the oldest. It's the first attested Circassian name we have because the Odyssey is a bit older than the classical period where we start hearing about Amazons, although there was an Amazon fighting at the war, Trojan War and all, and Vesalea. Um, the C's are pronounced Kuz in the original Greek. So Circe was actually pronounced Kirke. And this is the sorceress, the enchantress uh, that Odysseus encounters in the Odyssey. And he stays with her for a full year. Um, while his men are, have been turned into swine by the magic of Kirke. Um, Kirke, it's not clear what it means in Circassian, but it is clearly Circassian because it's also the root for Kirkatai, uh, an early warrior band of some sort mentioned by classical authors. Uh, and it's the root for Circassian itself because Circassian comes from the Italian Cercas, and the CI is going to, or CE is going to be Che automatically in Italian. Um, so Kirke becomes Circe in Italian. Uh, why Italian? Because the Renaissance Genoese and Venetians had extensive trade with the Circassians for silk and silk garments. Um, and the, <clears throat> the Silk Road was sort of coming to an end at Western Terminus um, in the hands of the Circassians, so to speak. With the rise of the Ottoman Empire, um, and their efforts to try to, to cut in on the silk trade. Um, um, the Italians sort of withdrew from their usual contact. And what they did was they took thousands of Circassians and transported them to Italy. 
um, where they, they and they diverted the silk uh, further north to keep it out of Ottoman hands and brought it down into Italy and made brocade garments in Italy uh, throughout the Renaissance using Circassian artisans. Um, there was a professor of, of uh, history of costume of all things from Italy contacted me some years back and sent me a map showing where they, the Circassians had settled. And the area between Naples and Rome was almost entirely Circassian. Um, and now uh, there's fair evidence that Leonardo da Vinci's mother was a Circassian. Oh, that's um, interesting. That's and, fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and there was a Medici, uh, the one that became a, a cardinal. Uh, his mother was Circassian as well. Um, They're looking then, at uh, da Vinci's DNA, I believe. They think they found yes. fathers, and now so you're saying the mothers may have been Circassian. Oh, very. Yeah. Well, Boris, Boris Johnson's grandmother was Circassian. Oh. <laughs> They keep popping up uh, in funny spots. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, the the women are, were were idolized in some ways um, for procreative reasons for one one thing, but but also as a kind of stabilizing element in a society that was prone to chaos. Uh, so, for example, one of the very powerful. Uh, forces or obligations uh, if you were in the Caucasus. This is true across the entire Caucasus, uh, was vendetta. So if you killed someone from a, another clan, even accidentally, that clan had full full authority to go after someone from your clan to kill them. Right. And only the men, <laughs> not the women. They were not subject to vendetta. Um and vendetta obligations persisted for seven generations. Uh, very serious. Um, they were they suspended only during warfare. And even there, sometimes there was confusion, uh, you know, whether uh, they should still be fighting each other like that. And if there was a fight between two men, a woman could stop the fight by throwing a handkerchief between them. Um, this is like, almost like, you know, medieval romance kind of stuff. Um, but that was true until the early 20th century, perhaps even now. Um, like a football yeah. game, too. It's like the referee throwing the uh, flag. Yeah, a flag, yes. It's probably where the referees got it from, from Renaissance behavior, chivalric uh, conduct. Um, and uh, often sports are archaic. They, have, they preserve archaic features. Um, another one was that uh, more dramatic, if you were uh, desperate, you could try to sneak into an uh, enemy's village, find a woman, rip open her bodice, and put her breast to your mouth. Um, nothing erotic about that. That was a symbolic suckling. And then you were linked by milk. Um, and therefore, the, the vendetta was dissolved. Uh, it was a, a joining unification of clans. Um, so they played a, a vital role there. And the men were... Uh, caught up in a kind of culture of bravado and and um, um, oh, what would you say? Um, well, belligerence. Uh, and the women stood outside of that um, and offered advice and wisdom. Um, it was something very much like a matriarchy. I don't like the terms patriarchy, matriarchy, because I think that they're too clumsy. I think uh, we need a more nuanced view of these kinds of systems. But um, the, the Iroquois here, about half hour down the road, I've, I've dealt with them a bit and I've been in some of their meetings and they 
nothing nothing gets by unless the elder woman at the meeting agrees to it. Uh, so she has the final say. Uh, right. So I've seen it in action. Um, and uh, it, it's a matriarchy, in, in, at least in, in terms of collective action, approval of collective action. The wisdom of the elder woman dominates, uh, takes precedence over everything. And that's also true of, of Circassians. Um, and they can even invite you into their bed. Um, but they're, they're not to let the husband know that that's crucial. Um, so they, they have enormous freedom and um, high regard. And that comes out, of course, in the Nart sagas. There's Lady Satanaya. She's a symbolic mother of the war band, mother of a hundred. Uh, there's Lady Adif, which is shining elbow. Uh, she's a crescent moon sort of woman. There's Lady Tree. And so this is the old Axis Mundi uh, folk theme that goes all across Eurasia. Christmas tree, Indra tree in India, pole, <laughs> maypole, whatnot. But in Circassian, she's she's a, a woman, and uh, this I is. Do love, I, I do love the the aspect of, uh, and I think you you wrote this in your notes. The idea that trees exist in three different realms at the same mm -hmm. time that yes. they, you know, that they they have roots down into the ground. They, the the trunk of the tree exists in the same realm that humans do, but their branches stretch up into the heavens. Mm -hmm. So there is this sense of you know, a deeper wisdom um, and that Lady Tree embodies that deeper wisdom of the three different realms. I thought mm -hmm. that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Well, you. well, well the, the God of the Forge uh, is setting out to find whatever, he, <laughs> something is, is never said what. And Lady Tree knows. She says the world has no edge. Um, the world is round, basically. I don't know how they knew that, but the, that was part of the wisdom. Um the world is round, yeah. And yeah. The, the tree, the, the world tree spans the three zones, the, the cosmic heavens, the, the worldly mundane zone here, Middle Earth, and then the fertility and treasures under the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of thing. Fascinating. Well, that may yeah. be a good, good way to go into some of the tales because there's the, the magic apple, uh, the tree with the magic apple. And that yes. is the, there's the character of pronouncing her name, Setanaya. Setanaya, yeah. Setanaya. She's very significant throughout all of these. Can you, mm -hmm. can you just talk a little bit about her and her tales? Uh, sorry? Yes, if you just, uh, just say a little bit about some of her tales and just why well, she's. Yeah, she's, um, uh, she's, she comes from afar. Okay, so like Guinevere and King Arthur, she's, she's not a native. Uh, she's uh, um, in a, a city depicted as a labyrinth, and it's called the Wod Wund. <laughs> it's hard to say, but Wod Wund, Wod Wund Kal. And uh, uh, the elder, an art leader, who's uh, an old man for some reason, uh, goes to woo her, and she mocks him. And um, there's a humorous exchange, a kind of insulting back and forth between the two of them. And uh, he's determined to have her and abduct her. Um, but also there's another question of abduction. And um, she has, she has a, a child that she rears in a grave mound and brings him forth. So she actually rec re has like a dead baby and resurrects him somehow. And he's gigantic and he's to go out and, and uh, save his uh, father or cousin. It's not, he's, the relationship is, is left indeterminate save him from a, a treacherous feast 
which is also a theme in Russian lore. And um, he does so, creates havoc and mayhem and overcomes all his enemies and uh, then goes riding off uh, for a joyride afterwards, uh, leaving his stunned father safe and sound, but, but bewildered. Um, his Warazameg, or Warazameg, um, son of the wild boar in Iranian. Uh, and he goes back to Satanaya and says, crazy, big, gigantic man came in and saved me and blah, blah. And uh, who is he? Well, what do you want him to be? Your son or your nephew or something? It's also a son, in the, like a son in that local um, kinship system. So he says, well, my son, my son, which is very odd that he's given the choice of determining how this resurrected giant is going to be related to him. It's very strange. Um, she's also tricky. Um, and in, in Abkha's tale, she wants to sleep with um, her half-brother, her brother, Pataras, uh, who doesn't want to commit that. And that's a, that's a theme we see in the Rig Veda of ancient India, too, between the god Yama and Yami, his sister Yami, god of death. Um, and uh, she actually deludes uh, Pataras's wife, who dies, and takes on her form, very much like a kind of a Celtic theme of impersonating someone so you can sleep with somebody. And uh, um, Pataraz wakes up and finds that uh, he's actually been sleeping with his sister. Uh, so that's a kind of that's that's something that suggests that we're actually looking at ancient theology here. That these are these are humanized gods because that's a kind of the incestuous kind of thing is something that uh, comes up in funny places and generally suggests. Um, uh, theological implications because gods have problems finding mates because they're generally all descended from one god and they're all brothers and sisters and they end up having to commit incest to get more gods, you know, another generation of gods. Um, so there's that. And then there's one where she um, sees a beautiful flower and plucks it, brings it home, it dies. Beautiful flower again, plucks it, brings it home, it dies. Beautiful flower, plucks it, brings it home and waters it. <laughs> And then she says, uh, uh, psi psam fad, uh, psi water psam, psam fad, uh, life, uh, lifelike or breathlike, lifelike is, so water is like uh, life to, to a plant. So she discovers what plants need, um, that kind of thing. Um, um, let's see another one where she is making um, some kind of a garment. And in competition with a young man who is making a saddle, and um, see which one can can finish first before the day is over, and um, uh, he's beating her. So she turns and appeals to the sun, and says to the sun, uh, "Stop, please, so I can I have more day to finish this." <laughs> of course, ignoring the fact that the, that the young guy would get more day too. But in any event. It allows her to beat out the young guy, and he says, "You're you're the best. You know how how to do these things." Uh, yeah, I, I wondered. I, I'm glad you pointed that out too, because as I read that, I was like, "Well, you know, he's getting more sun as well." So yeah. but somehow that didn't seem to. Well, no, she's a she's a strong finisher, apparently. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you she, go. Yeah, consistency is not something you're going to get all the time in mythology and in folklore. It's it's notorious, and it drives my students nuts. I say, you know. Enter here, all ye who, <laughs> who are willing to give up on consistency and enjoy the tales. Um, it's it's odd. It's it's. I say that tales like this are sort of part of the wine cellar of the human mind. 
They were oh, watching, I love uh, that. I love that. You know, yeah. we're watching archaic thought patterns and the habits. Well, like, I, I, I love what, what you say about that, um, the, the sort of details, the sort of odd, weird details that pop mm-hmm. up in these mm-hmm. tales are, are indications of, of, you know, little fragments of older thought mm-hmm. and yeah, that, exactly. um, you know, that they are, it's historical layering that this idea of like, this is a myth that was, you know, that was told over and over and over again. And for some reason, this particular detail was really important to continue talking about. And therefore, you know, it's, it's like this little clue um, mm-hmm. to what was happening and what was important when these tales were first being told. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, well, that's what you look for. It's, it's, that's also what you look for in languages, too. You look for odd words and, and strange phrases and so forth. Um, I'll give you an example. Marriage, traditional marriage vows are, till death do us part. Okay, what does that mean? Well, if you actually think about part as the verb, it's at the end of the sentence. And it's, it's a preservation in English of an old Proto-Germanic sentence pattern of subject, object, verb, whereas almost all the Germanic languages are subject, verb, object now, like English. So the object's at the end, right? But not in that, that phrase, the verb's at the end. And if you go to German and you talk about embedded clauses, you know, like das, ich, um, der, der, das mich gebracht habe, the verb's at the end, in an embedded clause, and it's only flipped up to the second position in regular simple sentences. So it's a little tricky. You got to sort of disentangle that, and the student has to know some stuff about how things move around and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's um, very present in Shakespeare as well. One of the reasons yes. why I, I I think I enjoy Shakespeare as much as I do is I, I grew up with a German mother. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, kind of used to the pattern of the verb being at the end of the yeah. sentence and, and mm-hmm. this idea of sort of circular thought. That yeah, well, do you know what let means and I'll kill him who lets me? Um, Say that again? I'll kill him who lets me in, in Hamlet. Uh, it's let, it's, it was late, long et, late, not let. Uh, it wasn't marked by Shakespeare. Uh, and it's, uh, it, I will kill him who lates me, makes me late. Um, okay. And I, I would ear the earth. Okay. What does that mean? Ear, well, earth actually comes as a TH like moon month, true, tree truth. <laughs> um, uh, earth is from a root ear, which originally meant to plow. Oh. It has nothing to do with the thing on the sides of your head. Right. Um, so I would plow the earth, is what Hamlet's saying. Fascinating. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So you have to know some <laughs> historical linguistics to get through Shakespeare sometimes. Yeah, um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What, what so, does so, uh, uh, no ambition? Yeah. Yeah. No ambition. Yeah. 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 Sorry, we were just <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I was just, just curious, just about you know, you know, we're talking about what's embedded and where these things come from. What is what's embedded in Setanaya? What are we getting about women's role in just from some of these? Because she is an uh, she's a really interesting character. Because when I was reading the the abduction sort of uh, quote unquote yes. abduction tale, you've got yeah. this abduction tale that's sort of the the origin story, and then you've got um, you know all these other tales of her 
wisdom and her cleverness, almost uh, Odysseus-like, of being mm-hmm. able to figure out how to solve stuff. So what do, what do we get from her about that culture and women in that culture? Well, I, th- I think there were more women at one time, and there are traces of alternate women. Um, but I think that uh, she has uh, sort of absorbed a whole bunch of uh, other features. Um, so there's Mizrach, uh, um, uh, who has lots of children, it means. Um, uh, there's Adif, Lady Elbow, there's Lady Tree, uh, these sorts of things. And they're still still sort of there. Uh, if you go to Abkhazian, they're gone. <laughs> they're all Saul, Satanaya, um, all, all absorbed into the one figure. Um, I think one of the clearest ones is when Rosameg, as a young man, tries to find a bride, and the bride's name is Satina, and that's literally the one who gives life. Uh, and she has to explain to him how <laughs> how to, to rescue her. He can't do it. He doesn't know, can't figure out anything. Um, so he rescues her from a land where not even birds fly around. So it's the land of the dead kind of thing. Um, so she's a, a fertility figure. And I think that, uh, you know, today's it's a crowded world today. You know, it's how many billion people we have now. And well, we have this pandemic running through everything, which you know all the you know all the crowds, and it doesn't help. Right? But I always tell my students that the good old days, the world was empty, and people died all the time, and women died in childbirth, and the children died. <laughs> so, so uh, the idea of vitality, of life, of giving life, sustaining life, was absolutely vital and central. Um, and so the, the the theological figure, the kind of personification of fertility and all this uh, is crucial. Um, but Satanaya herself, particularly because her name means, uh, Sata is Iranian for 100, Kentum in Latin, Hund uh, with the red pied off in English, 100. Um, uh, that's the kind of sound algebra one does in historical linguistics. And now Circassian, uh, mother, yeah, the one, the mother who's the one of a hundred, uh, she symbolically represents the unity of the war band. And we think there, there is a marvelous woman, Chris Kershaw, Priscilla Kershaw at Cornell, who wrote a beautiful monograph on the war band. We think that one of the reasons Indo-European spreading out was so successful was not only that they had horses and so forth, but they had a kind of military structure of a hundred warriors. That was kind of a group that was, you know, aimed at some some area. Okay, you don't want to fight, we'll settle down and so forth. You want to fight, we're going to destroy you. You get it with the Roman centurions, uh, Kentum again, centurion, um, uh, one, one representing a hundred, <clears throat> and um, uh, so all these one hundred guys, these warriors, they would have been fictional brothers, or in anthropology we say fictive, fictional make-believe brothers. Why? Because they would have had one mother. And um, uh, this would be Satanaya. And then they would, would protect the community, whatever. They'd go out and maybe conquer and raid and bring back more food and cattle or bring back wives or whatever. Um, and so this seems to have been an integral and vital part of the Indo-European social structure. And we are uncovering now the female figure that represents a unifying 
unifying factor of this. Her husband is sort of an old, broken down kind of nobody that they keep trying to kill. <laughs> you, know? but, um, you, you get it in King Arthur. You get it in King Arthur, and was, uh, um, he's dead now. C. Scott Littleton uh, and Linda Malcor, Helmut Nickel, also he died. He died. But there's some very strong indications that something weird happened to Celtic mythology. Um, the monks were writing it down because they thought it was going to die. At the same time, other monks were writing about King Arthur. Um, so the kinds of stuff you see, Sean, and, and your name is John and, and Gaelic, Sean, right. um, uh, you, you see the intense rivalry among the heroes in the traditional Irish lore. Uh, and it's one of the defining features of the Feast of Bricrio and this sort of stuff, um, Flem Bricran, um, and Gaelic. And... Um, uh, you don't get this in King Arthur. You get the Knights of the Round Table, and they're all equal because they're sitting around the table. There's no head of the table. And, oh, what happened? Where where are all the old heroes? They're not there. <laughs> we got a new cast. Uh, and one idea is, is that these were these were Sarmatian, uh, these Steparanians brought in by the Romans as mercenaries, settled in, in France and Burgundy and Breton area up north and the middle of France, sort of the east side. Uh, and in England, along Hadrian's Wall. And when they actually have found tombstones now to show these guys in their armor and, and so forth. And um, um, we actually, uh, Linda Melkor and a guy, uh, James Matthews, uh, have a book coming out that, that argues very strongly that uh, this is a Roman leader named Artorias. Um, because you can't explain Arthur in Celtic terms. It's, it's incomplete. The Ur is incomplete. Uh, Art is bear in Gaelic. Arth is, is bear in Welsh, but there's no Ur. <laughs> but you got Artorius, and he's subjected to a Celtic pronunciation, you get Arthur. Uh, so it would seem that the Iranian steppe characters are very close to us. Uh, and the names, I went through the names too. You, know, you, you were mentioning them as Siths or Skiths. Uh, that name actually looks like Armenian, and although the Armenians are, are down in what is now Turkey, there may have been some left up in the steppes. That's a common pattern we see with migrations. Uh, but Sarma, you go to, there was an old 19th century dictionary by V.V. Uh, v. Miller. I know it doesn't sound Russian, but he was a Volga German. Um, Vesyavolo uh, Vesarianovich Miller. Um, Sarma, Sarma in Ossetian, older Ossetian, was free man. And the ta is simply uh, um, collective ending. So it would be the band of free men. Um, uh, Skuti was probably the word for puppies uh, because dog was a, a term for brave, a violent warrior. It wasn't a curse or derogatory title. Uh, and puppies would have been young people. So we, uh, this is something Kershaw uncovered. Um, uh, and so... Uh, it's funny, we come, we come back around to that, dog being a good term, dog being a term in uh, popular hip-hop usage and urban usage, meaning a guy who's a fighter, a dog, your dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, same thing. I mean, these things pop up independently from various various angles and new cultural sources and so forth. And they represent that wine cellar. You know? Yes. Uh, yeah. we, like, we like our little doggies, but they're also uh, formidable, uh, can be formidable companions. Um, but Nogai, the Nogai, for example, this is, uh, they speak a Turkic language, but 
uh, it's in Mongol for dog. It's a war band. Um, you can go to Russian villainy, Russian tales, and there's dog Kalantar. Um, there's some kind of a Turkic enemy, and, but he's prestigious and powerful, so he's called a dog, dog Kalantar. Czars like, well, Caesar czars. You know. um, so, I uh, see Satanaya uh, establishes the war band as a kind of functional, unified social unit. Um, and then there's a question of berserkers, and that's where I've worked on that too. Um, we have a, an ancient carpet dug up from the permafrost of Siberia in 68 or 67, and the place is called Pazirik, P-A-Z-Y-R-Y-K, um, Pazirik in Tur local Turkic language. And there's a picture on the carpet of a figure without a mustache or beard, wearing a kind of funny little hat, dressed in a kind of robe, holding a branch that has leaves and fruit on it. And in front of that figure is a man on horseback who has a big mustache. And, you know, that's a typical male representation. And I think now, from the Nard Saga, so we can interpret that as Lady Tree, <laughs> with this weird effort to try to represent a combination of human and tree, and Klep, um, uh, uh, the god of the forge, having um, encountered her and going to have a tryst and falling in love and making babies. <laughs> Makes a, makes a baby. She makes Lady Tree gives off a baby um, Milky Way. Shishaw. Shishaw. Shishaw is milk. Shishaw is um, Shishaw's leg again. That's that sh from Abkhazian Ash. That's it. Shishaw is leg or trail. And Ro is um, a road. Uh, so literally Milky Way. Uh, and um, she gives birth to the stars. Very beautiful, very beautiful yeah. tale. Yeah, that is. That was one of the. Well, can you can you say a little bit about? I mean, maybe just as as we start to to wind down a little bit, the the warrior aspect, the warrior woman aspect of these, because there is the tale. Of course, there's the Lady Gunda, and then there is um, Lady Sana. You know, those two great tales. The Sana, in particular, which we started off with, which is a short tale and a really beautiful one. Mm -hmm. And as Adrian points out in her book, is a parallel to the way the Greeks tell one of the stories of. Achilles and Penthesilia. Right. Yeah. yeah. I also thought it was really interesting that they point out in that very short tale, they make a point of saying that she had red hair, that she was a redhead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have, you have light genes in, in this region. Um, and uh, the Abkhazians look more like Italians and have tend to have almost exclusively dark hair. But you go over the hills, start mixing with the Circassians, and you'll find people who quite pink and blonde-haired or red-headed. Uh, and those, those genes do pop up farther south occasionally, uh, much more so in the north. Um, and uh, there was a um, Circassian dialect group called Natho. Uh, Tro is um, white, and there's eyes, so light eyes, people with light eyes. Um, and when I was in, uh, uh, in Maikop, in the Circassian area, um, I couldn't tell Russians from Circassians. Um, went up to a man, big heavy man in a Navy uniform, he was all pink and very light brown, uh, light, light blonde hair, and I said, uh, shit, um, how's it going? 
in Sarkashan. And he turned to me and started talking right in, in fluent Sarkashan. Wow. Um, uh, I was sure he was a Russian. I was just testing, <laughs> playing yeah. memory, testing things. Um, so, yeah, Lady Narsana, I mean, there's, there's, um, uh, satanic or satana, uh, shatana, the, the S has become a sh in Ossetian in the last 70, 80 years. Uh, shatana, satana, um, mother of a hundred again. Shakona, Shakona is Sarkashan for Shia, hundred awesome, mother, mother with a hundred sons. Uh, but satana in, in, uh, Ossetian has a beautiful tale where, um, the, her, her husband actually accidentally kills their son. He doesn't know because the son's been sent out to foster age to, to another family, and it's it's an accident with a knife at the dining table. And uh, a year goes by, and they uh, they forget about the son. They they're supposed to set a place uh, 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 food and plate uh, place to eat for people on the anniversary of their death. They forget to do it, so he he gets permission to leave the land of the dead, and. Um, Goes and has uh, great hunting expeditions with his father. Then reveals him, uh, who he is, and um, he says, "He says to Satana, there was this young man.' You know, blah, blah, blah. She said, "Of course, that's our dead son." And she she recognizes and goes running out after him, trying to catch him. And um, uh, the the son has left his ring with the father. She has the ring, takes the ring back, and she says, "Let me have one look at your face." And he says, I can't, I'm uh, sundown, I'm going to be locked out of the land of the dead, and I'll have nowhere, I'll be wandering loose soul. And she says, here's the ring. And she throws it at him, and he holds up his hand and turns his face, and the ring lands on his finger, and she just gets a glimpse of his face for a brief second in the twilight of the setting sun, and he's, he just scoots into the land of the dead before the gates close. Uh, it's called the Nameless Son of, of um, Urasmag, Urizmag as well as Meg in Ossetia and Urizmag. Urizmag. Um, it's a beautiful, very, very poignant story. Yeah. They're really beautiful. That's she, knows, she understands, in Ossetian too, she understands what's going on uh, and what to do. Um, so, I mean, it's, today uh, there, there's, there's, they still have enjoy enormous respect. I had a, a dinner at a house of a gangster, <laughs> and uh, uh, when we got done eating, we went to a door. I didn't know what was going on. We all lined up on either side, and we started clapping in this rhythmic, unified way that that's just typical of Eastern Europe and all. And uh, the door opens up, and there's an old lady and four young women in there, and they're covered in flour, and they've been making all the food. And they, they received all these applause. And it's just like they performed a sonata or something. <laughs> oh, wow. It was really nice. Yeah. Thank the people that uh, give you the sustenance. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And make, it, make it palatable. And... It's funny. I, it makes me think of when I was a kid, I was at a Knights of Columbus banquet. And the guy gets out. And before they continued into whatever the banquet was going to be about, he thanked the ladies who made the spaghetti, and they all came out. Oh. And everybody applauded for the women who did that. It reminds me of that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, very similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very similar. Um, so, just to, to kind of to, to wrap up, what mm -hmm. would you leave the listeners with about one that Artsakh is generally because we've you've done. I really want you to come back, and, and I'm sure Donna's as well to talk more about these. 
but this is such a rich world. We barely scrapped the scratch the surface, but uh, at least since for the focus of this podcast, which is about the, the women in the ancient world, what can you, what would you like to leave a listener about with what they can learn from these tales and then also let them know about you know, specifically about your book and where they can get it. Okay. Well, I think one thing that people should grasp and use as a guiding star for further reading and, and pursuits and, and their own curiosities, curiosity or all, is that there are zones of a Western civilization that are very poorly known, uh, that have been suppressed for some reason, have been marginalized, uh, peoples to whom history has been grossly unfair. Uh, and often these people contain features and preserve patterns uh, and habits or, or customs that really underlie a lot of what is much more familiar to us uh, and which sort of typifies acts as the bedrock for sort of canonical Western culture that we really don't, uh, don't understand. We don't really have a full grasp of where some of these habits and all have come from, whether it's clothing, whether it was chivalry, um, uh, whether it's the importance and autonomy of women. Um, and some of this uh, helps explain some of these weird things in, in ancient history, like the Spartans. The Greeks treated their women terribly. Uh, any monster in the Greek myth was going to be female. You know? but, but not the Spartans. And Gorgo, from which we get gorgeous, um, which is also based on a route for terrifying, was this drop-dead gorgeous queen that the Spartans worshipped. Uh, and um, um, so they had a completely different attitude toward that. And my, sometimes I wonder if, if the Spartans, because they came in late into Greece, if they were not somewhere right, you know, next door to the Circassians uh, uh, when they came down to Greece yeah. about 1100 BCE. Um, so I, I would think that examining some of these, these forgotten or suppressed peoples, damaged cultures, uh, is very rewarding and gives you, can give you insights into your own world that you might not get um, uh, in any other obvious way. Uh, so I do think that um, reading Nart Sagas is good for you. <laughs> it helps give you perspective, not just on the, the Narts and the world that comes there, but on certain other stuff that is part of our world in a broader sense. Uh, there are two books. Uh, there is um, Nart Sagas from the Caucasus, the first one, that's 2002. And there's Tales of the Narts, which is from Ossetian. Uh, uh, Sagas is uh, Circassians, Ubuks, Abazas, and Abkhaz, uh, all related linguistically. And Tales of the Narts is from Ossetian, and that was in collaboration with uh, an Ossetian scholar named Tamar Tamerlan Sobiev. Uh, also has the, the name of an English expatriate that sort of like Ken Philby took up with the Russians, uh, Walter May. <coughs> Walter May. <coughs> <coughs> Although I did translate one on a CTN tale, uh, added it at the end, it's sword in the lake, like King Arthur, they, <laughs> at, uh, death, throw, the hero throws his sword into a lake. Um, but uh, most of it was dealing with the English. It was very obvious to me that after the first 10 or 12 tales that 
whoever was translating it did not speak English <laughs> because they screwed uh -huh. up with those, <laughs> which are the hardest thing in English to, to explain to anybody. Um, uh, so they're all, they're both from Princeton University Press and they um, uh, are available in paperback. Uh, I also have a third volume from Lincom Europa, Europa, L-I-N-C-O-M dash Europa. It's a small publishing house in Munich, Germany. And it's a collection of, of Nart sagas in the original languages, and in which the original language is a sentence in it, then it's completely analyzed and, and what we call glossed. So if you want to actually get some view of, of these languages, uh, you can go to that book. It's called Linguistic Reader <laughs> um, in Northwest Caucasian languages. Um, and uh, uh, there are tales there in various Circassian dialects in, in this uh, um, almost extinct language, Ubuch and Abaza, and two forms of Abkhazian. So those who have a linguistic passion, and I'm told 17% of the population has a linguistic passion. Um, <laughs> so, and it's from Princeton University Marketing Department. So, um, um, Well, Princeton would never lie, John. <laughs> I know you're from Princeton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty place. I've been there several times giving talks. So, um, yeah, so they, um, uh, uh, they um, uh, were complaining. They were, they were a little bit worried about their first volume because it was over a certain size and, and about 250 is the limit. You can publish a book at 250 with minimal risk. If you start going over that, you might really get serious loss of money, right? Mm. And I was pushing 400, and, and I said, well, take out the text, because at the back of the book, there are all these analyzed texts, uh, sort of like a precursor of what I did with the, the Munich publisher. And uh, they said, oh, no, we won't leave them in. I said, well, then you drop down to about 280, and you're okay. And no, no, we leave them in. I said, why? 70% of the population will buy the books just for those languages. And I said, how do you know this? We know this from Lord of the Rings. Mm. Yeah, volume three, where they have Tolkien, um, and it's pronounced Tolkien, by the way. Uh, Tolkien uh, invented these languages and, and right, yeah. some make-believe texts. And I know people that became linguists uh, because of that. <laughs> um, poor souls. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah i was uh i definitely was um have have been a lifelong nerd and went through my uh my phase of of learning uh elvish in in high school so there you go i, I get it i get it <laughs> there you go yeah. See, that that's the thing don if a guy in high school said that he'd never date so <laughs> Well, I don't de date either, so there you go. Right, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank uh, John Calarusa. This has been really, really amazing and wonderful. Thank you so much, John. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And as always, lovely. it's been really <laughs> wonderful to bring this to our listeners. Yeah, I yeah. love it. I love it. And thank you, Don, as always, for your insights. And okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. Um, if you would, you know, just send me some idea of where it is so I can put it on my CV and make my department envious. Absolutely. <laughs> will, we'll, send, we'll send it off to you. And on, on that, <laughs> I want to thank all of our listeners. This has been the 34 Circe Salon. Make matriarchy great again. Thank you all for listening.
Take care, everyone, and blessed be.